calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Realm presents Book Burners, Episode 14. Somewhere, then. Chen Juan woke on a bed of straw tasting dust and wax. She sat up sharply with a cry. Her body curled into a ball, knees near her chin, arms raised. The skin of her arms looked like skin. She wasn't burnt. She could breathe. She was, but there had been a span of time where she wasn't. Sunlight streamed through a narrow window. She stood. What she'd taken for a bed was, in fact, a crate, packed with straw, now open. She wore a shirt and slacks of loose cotton. Her feet were bare and the floor beneath them stone. Outside the window, tile roofs rose and fell like the surface of the sea on a high wind, each roof's corner capped by a dragon. The window faced south and was high enough that she could see over the thick red walls to the gate across Tiananmen Square. She stood in the former imperial palace. Central had called her home. Welcome back, said a familiar voice behind her. Would you like some tea? You must be thirsty. She turned quickly, already smiling. Wu Sheng. He sat beside a low table and looked thinner than she remembered, his face drawn but less grievously injured than she feared. Burn scars rippled his cheeks and forehead, but they had healed well. Aside from those, he looked the same as ever. No, she decided, not the same. He seemed more himself. I'm glad to see you. He sounded tired. Four men in army uniforms stood behind him. She didn't know them, but they weren't important. Beside Wu Jing stood a thick candle in a bone holder. She tensed when she saw it, but the fire burned low. Why is that candle lit? Chen Juan, he said. Sit down, please. We got him? We got him. Have some tea. She sat and drank. The army men did not move. They might have been carvings. I don't understand. 
you were hurt, he said. She read his face. Hurt badly, I suppose. Yes. Burned? There were burns, but they've healed. How's Asan? Fine, he said, uh, blind in one eye now. We brought you back to Central, and the scholars have been working on you ever since. The tea tasted of smoke and thyme. Why did you bring the candle? It seems ghoulish. Uh, the candle. He tasted the word. The candle is part of the problem and the solution. What do you mean? Zhenjuan, he said and leaned forward. Candlelight and sun glinted off the gray at his temples, which had not been there yesterday. Please listen to me. No, but she did not move. She sat as still as the army men stood. On Topov's notes show that he thought his immortality would be conferred by a baptism of fire. You ran into his circle, you drank the wax. And then you seized his fire and finished the ritual. She shook her head. She wanted to say something, but she had no words. When you snuffed the candle out, the wax stopped moving, as if the flame was all that kept it liquid. Antopo fell like a statue, and you just stood there. How long, she said. The words were hollow. They must have been hollow. You didn't seem to have heard them. We thought it was the wax. We scraped it off, but you didn't wake. Your wounds healed. Your skin was still skin, not like his, but you held still. The scholars think he brought a supply of the final product when he fled Mongolia. An imperfect mixture. He used it to make the candle. It kept him young while it burned. If he finished the ritual, if he melted those girls, maybe the candle wax wouldn't run, or maybe there would just be more candle. We don't know. But you took the flame from him. The candle's yours now. When we light it, you start to breathe, and you wake up. And so do the wax things, of course, but you're the keystone. Her hands shook. She set down the teacup before she dropped it. How long? He wilted beneath her gaze. He passed her his newspaper. The date on the front page read 1933. Five years. He nodded. You kept me under for five years. She stood. The army men started forward. She glared at them and they stopped. Fire flowed through her heart instead of blood, bloomed in her lungs instead of breath. Wu Jing's eyes were wet. I'm sorry, he said. I didn't want to risk it, to risk you. Each drop from that candle is a day you won't get back. Every day is one we won't get back. But yours are more limited than most, he said. We've tried to save you all these years, but we haven't learned how. You should have asked me. Perhaps. He reclaimed the newspaper and folded it. Perhaps I couldn't bear to. 1933. What did I miss? Too much. The Japanese invaded. The monsters came with them. The Bureau of Official Secrets has been busy. I've barely slept in months. I can help, she said. Now that I'm awake again. He set down the newspaper. That's not why we're talking. She should not have listened. She did not want to listen. The Japanese threatened to invade Beiping. To protect the Palace Museum, we will evacuate it south by rail. 
That's the cover story. In fact, we're moving the entire Bureau collection. For the next few years, our efforts will be dedicated to the war, to preventing outbreaks and the fall of cities. I've been commanded, a word he twisted sour, to halt research and development efforts not directly tied to the war effort. I wanted to wake you and tell you. It may be a long time before we speak again. How long? Strange that her voice could sound so level. The candle flame jumped beside him. Five more years? Ten? You leave me in a damn crate until everyone I know is old and dead just to give me a chance? He flinched but did not look away. She wondered if she could have done the same if their situations were reversed. As long as it takes, he said, we won't give up. She ran. Four soldiers stood between Chen Zhuan and the door, but they weren't ready. They must have expected her to bolt earlier. Her initial confusion had calmed them. So when she vaulted over the table and kicked the largest soldier in the throat, the others seemed to move in slow motion. She hit one in the face before he could raise his arm to block. She had never moved this fast. She had never been this strong. She kicked his knee. Arms slipped around her from behind, began to tighten, but she ducked and slammed her elbow into the crotch of the man who'd tried to grapple her. The room filled with a brilliant light, the candle flame a foot high now and blazing as wax rolled down its sides. Wu Jing revolved slowly as a planet and raised the newspaper. Before she could reach him, he swatted out the flame. She was not strong enough to move her arms. She was not fierce enough to move her feet. She stood like a diorama figure. Color ebbed from the world's edges and the drain proceeded in. Wu Jing raised his hand. The army of men lifted her like a statue. They straightened her arms and legs. They placed her gently on the straw. One of them bled from his mouth and from the nose she'd broken. I'm sorry, Wu Xing said. She fought to open her eyes, but he closed them. She heard a lid settle against the crate, and then a hammer fell, and time became a stretch of knot. Four, Rome, now. Night in Rome is never quiet, nor precisely dark but there are shadows. At 9.30, the front gate guard of St. Catherine's changed. The newcomer started her shift with a flashlight walk through the garden, then released the dogs and returned to the watch house to read a romance novel, thin enough that she could hide it under a newspaper if anybody came by. The German shepherds prowled among trailing vines and between rose bushes. The larger of the pair pissed decorously on the lawn. A dark missile arced over the fence, landed with a thud, and lay still. The larger dog advanced, curious. Whatever this was, it smelled delicious. Tasted delicious, too. Chewy, good texture, nice marbling of fat. The smaller dog approached. Dog the first growled, less viciously than she intended. In fact, she felt less driven to do much of anything. Save sleep. The second dog finished the steak before he noticed the first was lying down. He didn't think much, as a rule, especially when steak was involved. He certainly didn't think much for an hour after this particular meal. When both dogs lay dreaming, a gray-clad figure climbed the fence in three poles, vaulted over, landed bent-kneed on the grass, and ran toward the convent's back door. A shadow knelt behind a bush, and when she stood a few minutes later, she wore a black robe and a rumpled wimple. One advantage of working in the Vatican, Sal considered, was that nuns' habits weren't difficult to find. 
She reached for the lockpicks in her pocket, then decided to try the door first. It was unlocked. Inside, the convent didn't look much different from any other building. Narrow halls, yellowed walls, arched brick ceiling. She brushed down the hall at a dignified but swift pace until she reached the stairs. Sal saw nobody on the first floor, nobody on the second. Maybe there was some sort of curfew? Was she supposed to be praying somewhere? Should she worry about cameras? But four nuns lingered in a sitting room on the third floor, talking quietly in Italian and drinking wine. As Sal climbed, she heard an old woman laugh. The fourth floor was empty again, even the hallway lights were dim. Sal treaded lightly, counting apartment numbers. 416, 417. Behind her, a door opened, then closed again. Sal forced her heart to beat. She wasn't cut out for breaking and entering. Her career had focused more on the other side of the crime. She tried Grace's door. Locked, of course. Used for the lockpicks after all. Not that she could afford to be seen kneeling in front of Grace's door raking pins, but she'd come this far. She'd already violated Grace's privacy, not to mention a number of laws. All for nothing if she left now. Sunk cost fallacy, Perry would have called that. But if you'd sunk your costs already, you might as well dive to get them. Sal knelt. She'd learned this from Perry, too. He used to test himself against locks in the backyard, asked her to time him. He never offered to let her try. It didn't even occur to him to challenge her, so of course she learned. Beat him half the time, once she got good enough, at which point he stopped testing her. But she still practiced. Click. Sal wrapped her hand in the rope, opened the door, and stepped inside. In a room Sal had never seen, a small red light began to blink. You may not be on an elite team of investigators fighting the dangers of magic, but that doesn't mean you have to be defenseless when it comes to protecting your data online. Lucky for you, our partners at NordVPN know their way around the World Wide Web. VPN stands for Virtual Private Network, which creates a sort of encrypted tunnel while you're online, protecting your private data like bank details and passwords, so you can browse safely wherever you are in the world. In addition to providing you with a high level of security online, my favorite use of NordVPN is to virtually switch my location, so I can watch movies and shows that aren't currently available in my area. Plus, that way I can still access my favorite content when I'm traveling as well. I'm a fan of pretty much any British TV show, but they aren't always available in the US, so with NordVPN, I can virtually travel across the pond to enjoy my telly. NordVPN is also the fastest VPN in the world, and you can get all that speed, protection, and virtual locations for the price of just a coffee a month. To get the best discount off your NordVPN plan, go to nordvpn.com bookburners. Our link will also give you four extra months on the two-year plan. There's no risk with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. We can imagine many potential futures. Some serve as inspiration, others, warnings. Wondery offers one possibility of the future in their new show, The Last City. The year is 2072, and the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geo-engineered paradise that protects fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, 
floods, and droughts. Demetria Lopez heads up Pura's public relations, tirelessly promoting the city's idyllic image. But when she stumbles upon a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Somewhere else, then. Thick, stifling, humid air filled Chen Tuan's nose and mouth and throat and lungs. She inhaled dust, coughed, shook. Her forehead struck wood. Darkness and straw pressed close around her. She lay alone in black. She could not move. She screamed. The sound she produced was a croak, a roar, not at all the sound a human voice might make. Somewhere, a man cursed. Nightmares wormed in her head, enormous gulfs of time filled with humiliating teeth and shredded skin, reflection after reflection after reflection of flame. She cried out again with her broken voice. The man replied, or spoke anyway, beyond the dark that was Chen Juan's bounded world. There was an outside. She wasn't buried. She wasn't trapped. She was hot, so deathly hot, and the air lay heavy on her so she could hardly breathe. When she did breathe, she tasted straw and funk and mold. But there was an outside. The man waited there, her jailer, Wu Jing's minion, Wu Jing who had visited her in darkness. Or had he? Had she only imagined him? Wu Jing, whose voice and whose touch on her eyelids had grown roots in her sleep. She struck the crate lid with her forehead. Dust and splinters rained onto her face. Blood trickled down her nose. She could not hit hard enough, bounded like this. Gravity told her stories. She lay in a long crate, tilted back, too shallow for her to generate much power. But there was room enough to slide her arms over her body. Her shirt tore even at such light contact, so both palms pressed against the lid. Drawing breath hurt in this heat. She felt like she was swimming in herself, but she pressed, she growled, she roared, and her roar echoed tinnily. She remembered Wu Jing and the casual flick with which he'd swatted out her flame. She was awake again, so someone must have broken the spell or lit the candle. If they knew what she was, they would have snuffed the flame already, so they did not know, which meant. What, Japanese, maybe? Had the train fallen and left the Bureau's precious collection in strangers' hands? Wu Jing's collection in which she took central billing? Goddamn girl in the goddamn crate? Not again, not anymore. She pressed. Fire flickered beneath her skin like a ghost's touch. She remembered that feeling from the moment of her betrayal. Let the candle burn, let it burn me free. Nails cracked, rotten timbers gave. And there was light such as she had not seen in how long? She didn't know, didn't care. She stepped barefoot from the crate. Dust covered her. Ragged, rotten clothes hung from her body. She stood on a hot metal floor covered with broken wood. The room was not a room at all, but a long corrugated metal box, about nine feet tall and nine feet wide, cluttered with crates and junk. Light entered through a ragged gash in the box's roof and cast columns in dust-laden air. Above, 
She saw all the greens of a jade carver's workshop and more, bright and emerald and pastel. Green so deep it turned blue. Green sharp as knives, feather-light green. Green that fell as heavy as an anvil on the eye. Behind all that, the sun shone. Kay? The man. She had not imagined him. She lowered her gaze from the hole in the roof. There was a narrow hall down the center of the metal box, and he stood at the far end, eyes wide, one hand out as if to ward off a blow. He wore a sweat-stained black shirt and a Catholic priest's collar. His skin was dark and his cheekbones high, and he was not Japanese. Mexican, maybe? And he was beautiful. The candle burned between them on its stand of bone. She had never learned Spanish. Hello? She tried in Chinese. She stepped forward. Her feet held. He did not run for the candle. He did not seem to understand. She tried a different Chinese dialect, then Japanese, Russian. He looked confused. Hello? She tried again in English. That he got. Hello? He licked his lips. Who are you? Grace. She continued her slow advance and he his retreat. She reached the candle and placed a hand on the wax to steady herself. What's your name? I am Arturo, he said. His tongue darted pink between his lips. She'd seen that expression before. She knew how it felt on her own face. This was a man out of his depth, groping for some procedure to apply. Father Arturo Menchu. Father, she laughed. He was her age, maybe younger. Did Wu Xing send you? He shook his head. Uh, I do not know that name. Uh, the Societis Librorum Occultorum sent me. Chen blinked. The Catholic Bureau. You people aren't allowed in China. You're not in China, he said. This is Guatemala. We traced the shipping container from its last port of call in Guadalajara. Wu Jing had sent her across an ocean. How bad had the war gone, anyway? She knew she had not yet asked the only important question. She had let the moment carry her. The young priest, the whole, the layers of dancing green, the sunlight on her skin, the weight of the air worse even than the August in Guangzhou, like breathing through blankets last used to dry a hairy, smelly dog after a swim in a muddy river. She did not want to ask the only important question, because once she did, the answer would never be anything but what it was. What year is it? I don't understand. He did. He just wasn't letting himself know he understood. The year, the date. What is it? She tried not to speak too tersely. She did not want to scare him. July 14th, he said. 1985. She doubled over. She hadn't thought this could happen in real life, the shortness of breath, the sickness of realization. It did in books, of course, and actors faked it on the stage. But her lungs would not fill. She could not think. The world narrowed to a point. Grace, the priest said, are you okay? No, she thought. If not for her grip on the candle, she would have fallen. She looked at him through the strands of hair that fell across her face. I am not okay. I will never be okay again. Fortunately, at that moment, the crates behind Arturo exploded and a wax lion tackled him. And for a few seconds, her world returned to normal. Rome, now.
Sal entered Grace's small apartment and closed the door behind her. The lights were out. She didn't turn them on. She slipped off habit and wimple and hung them on the coat rack by the door, by the jacket Grace had worn to Spain. Right room, at least. She recognized most of the shoes in the shoe rack, too. There was a small kitchenette to the right of the entrance, just large enough to turn around in, and so neatly kept, Sal doubted Grace used it much. She had only seen kitchens that clean in movies. Past the kitchenette, a narrow, sparsely furnished sitting room overlooked the street. An Escher print hung on the wall, and aside from that, the only decoration Sal noticed was a photo calendar, each month featuring a new photo of a kitten in mortal danger. Sal had heard people describe this sort of thing as motivational. Maybe it was supposed to motivate you to keep kittens away from calendar designers. This month, Grace had marked off three days, the previous month, two. Other than that, the room held a single plush chair and a nearly empty bookcase, far too empty for someone who read as much as Grace. Maybe she donated the books when she was done. Sal slid Grace's middle march out of her jacket pocket, pondered shelving it and leaving, but decided that would be too creepy. Every instinct she'd ever possessed, and some she hadn't, screamed go. She had come to talk with Grace, but the gulf between showing up at a troubled co-worker's doorstep unannounced with an apology and breaking into said co-worker's apartment to root through her personal effects was, to put it mildly, broad. It was a kind of gap into which people fell screaming. So, of course, she opened the bedroom door. And because she was so assiduously suppressing her other instincts, Sal also squashed the urge to curse. Grace lay on her bed. She wore green pajamas and slept with arms crossed over her chest like Dracula in movies when he was dead. Sal froze. Running would make more noise than simply backing up, turning around, and leaving. So long as she hadn't woken Grace already. So she waited. Grace didn't move. That was good, Sal thought at first. Grace didn't move some more. Nor did she breathe. No one was that heavy a sleeper. Grace, Sal whispered. After that yielded no response, she tried again. Grace? Nothing. Was she? No, that wasn't possible. People died, sure, all the time. Sal had seen it. People in good health, people who hit the gym, people with eight-pack abs who could bench 430. Blood vessels just burst in their brain at three in the morning, and so much for the muscle man. But they didn't go peacefully. They screamed, their faces twisted. They curled around their stomach in pain as their appendix burst. And after they died, they stank. Bowels emptied as muscles slacked. They didn't arrange their arms in the goddamn Dracula position. She walked to Grace's bedside, took her arm, shook her. Grace, damn it, come on, Grace, wake up. Her skin was not cold, not exactly, but cool to the touch and more stiff than the skin should be. Sal tapped Grace's cheek with the palm of her hand. It was smooth and round, and like the skin of the other woman's wrist, it yielded less than Sal thought it should. Grace? Jesus Christ, Grace, are you there? No answer. Magic. Someone must have gotten to Grace somehow. On the last mission, maybe? A bit of delayed vengeance, courtesy of the hand? One more parry for the clinic beds? No. Grace, there around her neck, she wore a silver cross without a trace of tarnish. It felt hot to Sal's touch, electric like silver always felt these days, but there weren't any demons at work, she thought. 
Unless they could get around the silver somehow, which perhaps they could. Fuck. She glanced around the room. All the decoration that wasn't in the sitting room was here. Photos covered the walls, pictures of Team 3, large framed shots of a Chinese city Sal didn't recognize. More of an ambiguously European waterfront. Prints of paintings of sunflowers. A Turkish tapestry tumbled down one wall, all geometry and gold thread. Sculptures lounged on shelves. And beside Grace's bed hung a small sign printed on thick paper in the woman's blocky hand. In case of emergency, light candle. Beneath the sign stood a thick white candle on a stand made of what looked like a yellowed fine-grained wood. A matchbook rested on the bedside table. If Grace had been attacked, this certainly qualified as an emergency. But what could lighting the candle do, summon Menchu? Grace scorned magic. Maybe the candle had a special smell or something that would wake her? Don't think too much. Thinking too much was how you got shot. Grace was out, this wasn't natural sleep, it wasn't meditation or anything like that. She didn't have a pulse for Christ's sake. In case of emergency. Sal struck a match and lit the candle. The curled black wick took flame grudgingly. Sal cradled the ember so a draft wouldn't blow it out. Brightening, the flame warmed her hand. It seemed to have a presence beyond the heat, as if she held a small bird. She shook out the match. Nothing happened, of course. That's what came of spending your days dealing with freaky magic. You started to think the world was full of freaky magic, when in fact it was mostly candles. She licked her fingers and reached to pinch off the flame. At which point, something struck her fast and hard in the face. Guatemala, then. When the fires died, Chen Juan and the priest lay on the ground outside the smoldering wreckage of the container, with the candle upright between them. Rivers of wax ran from the wrecked metal box. Trees towered overhead. Sun threw layers of green, laid layers of shadow on the earth and on their bodies. Chen Juan laughed so hard, tears came to her eyes. I can't believe, Arturo said. I can't, I mean, they almost had me. There were so many of them. Just like Wu Jing, she said. Ship all the wax things in one box to make the bookkeeping easier. He never did like, she said when she stopped laughing before she started again. He never did like filling out forms. Arturo rolled over on his side to face her. His eyes were deep and liquid brown. A wax burn ran down his temple to his cheek. You should have a doctor look at that, she said. You're not wax. I'm not she said. I am not a thing, either. But the candle flame is my life. As long as it burns, I'm awake, and when it stops, she snapped her fingers. When did you go to sleep? Where? She liked him for that. Sleep, not when did they put you in that box. China, in 1933. I'm so sorry. I should go, she said, and rolled to her feet and lifted the candle. Antopov couldn't have come up with a more portable means of eternal life, of course. This must have been the old man's compromise position. Left to his own devices, he likely would have built something enormous with a dome on top. Don't. I have to get back. Where? He asked. She didn't have an answer. China's changed a lot in 50 years, he said. The place you left isn't there anymore. 
He sat up, stood up, reached for her. I can't. She recoiled, clutching the candle. No, if they're gone, then I'll do something. This candle could last years if I don't push it. I won't be the first person in the world who died young. We can help you. What you did in there, I've never seen anyone move like that before. You could work with the society. We have resources. We could take care of you while you look for a cure. Study me, you mean, like a rat in a maze. The last time I heard that was from the man who put me in that crate. No. The words violence convinced her. The violence and his sweat and his fear. She'd seen men fake sincerity before. When faking, they did not look so afraid. Grace, no. Look, all the society does is search for things. One of those things might free you. And if we don't find what we're looking for, at least you can help. You saved my life. You could save the world. A bird sang high up in the shaggy bark trees, taller and thicker than any trees she'd seen before. She was far from home. You're fooling yourself, she said. I know how they made this candle. We can't make another. There's no hope. There always is. You'll have to believe for both of us, she said. I will. Rome, now. Sal's skull bounced off Grace's bedroom wall. Something struck her in the stomach at high velocity, and she doubled over, breathing black. Knee, she thought, in the second before her legs swept out from under her, and she struck the carpet heavy and limp as a sandbag. A hand, a human hand, thank whoever for small favors, grabbed her throat, and even as Sal tried to raise her guard, her eyes focused through the stars on a familiar-looking fist. And beside that fist, on an even more familiar face, fixed in an equally familiar expression of rage. Grace, she gasped with the last of her breath. Hi. The other woman's face glowed in the firelight. The candle had flared when she moved, and now it crouched again. The tension around Sal's neck relaxed to let her inhale. I'm sorry. Sal pointed to the carpet, to the fallen, soot-stained Middlemarch. I don't speak, I mean, uh, I brought your book. What the hell are you doing here? Did Arturo send you? No, I came on my own. You had no right. I wanted to apologize face to face. It sounded so shallow. I fucked up. Yes. Grace's fist opened. She sat back on her thighs, on Sal's stomach, then stood. I almost hurt you. Almost? Sal rubbed the back of her head. Grace didn't offer her a hand. She rose slowly with the aid of the wall. The candle flame danced, twinned in Grace's eyes. Get out of here. And then Sal understood, with the old detective's trick. The problem opened in her mind like a lock at the turning of its key. The calendar, only a few days crossed off each month, the books on assignment and none at home, no food in the kitchen, no time outside of work, no gym, no social life. The photo she'd seen in Menchu's apartment, the father looking young and Grace looking just the same. It's you, she said. You're in the candle somehow. Behind her on the bedroom wall, all those society photos year after year and Grace unchanged. I told you to leave, do it. Don't tell anyone about this and we'll both forget you were ever here. Sal stared at her. You can't hide this, she wanted to say, to scream. Tell me everything, I wanna know. 
And that was the heart of it laid bare. She hadn't come here for Grace or for the team. She'd come here for herself, not caring what damage she might cause. I'm sorry, she said, and meant it this time. The night pressed against the window. I was selfish, back with the bugs and for a long time now. I didn't want to let those people die, so I endangered all of us and the mission. And here, I didn't have a right to see any of this. I betrayed you because I was hurting and because I didn't think. Maybe I'll earn your trust someday. For now, I'll go. She walked past Grace into the Baron's sitting room and headed for the door. You asked what I knew about getting hurt, Grace said. Sal stopped moving. There's your answer. My friend's dead, my life stolen, no escape. And I got out light by most standards. I only lost everything. A Vespa sped past on the street outside and far below. I didn't know, Sal said. Of course not. Everything's about you in the end. Her voice was a wire garret, sharp and tight. But when she spoke again, it softened. We all think it is, most of the time. I'm so sorry. You should be. I'll leave. You shouldn't have come, but you might as well stay. She sounded raw. Better to tell it all at once. When did this all happen? Sal asked. A long time ago. Five. Then. They built a system that worked. It was easier than Grace expected. She slept most of the time. She learned to think of it as sleeping. He woke her every week without fail, and most of the time she snuffed the fire out again. When the sphere glowed, when duty called, she went with them. They learned, she fought, they brought what they discovered home. Father Hunter studied the books and artifacts they found. They collected spent wax and recast it, but those candles did not wake Grace. They carved, at her insistence, a piece of wax from the candle itself and reshaped it into a new, smaller candle. That one would wake her, but it burned faster. The magic did not admit bargains or tricks. No matter how Father Hunter searched, a cure remained outside his grasp. And when Father Hunter aged and left and Asante became archivist, she tried too, and charted more dead ends. Grace killed monsters whose gazes drove men mad. Grace tossed a demon over Niagara Falls and followed it down. Grace wrestled with an angel, or something that claimed to be one. She healed fast, and if she made the candle burn brighter, she could move at speeds no human being could match. She ran down a car once because she had to. When he saw how much of the candle that burned, Arturo asked her to promise never to do it again. That was the first time they fought. She saved the world, and every time she woke, the world was older. The young priest grew scars and a mustache to cover them. Gray colonized his hair and pain those beautiful eyes. The missions came more often. In the 80s, they needed her once every few months at most. She took vacations then. Now, the missions came month by month, week by week sometimes. And then, they met Sal. Now. Christ, Sal said when she finished the story. Language, please, Grace replied with a little smile that was still more than Sal had ever seen her offer. Easier and more sad. I'm an old-fashioned lady. The tea kettle screamed and she poured two cups. No one told me. Of course not. Even Liam doesn't know. 
I grew tired of explaining to each new teammate of being everyone's problem. I'm so sorry. You said that already, Grace answered. Can we leave it? I have a condition. Many people do. I manage mine. Steam rose off the tea. Talking about it makes things hard. People want to fix me, save me. It doesn't help. Better to be alone. Sal took the tea and sipped and hissed as the water scalded her tongue. I've been running around here thinking it was all just me, that I was the one on the outside of everything, of my old life and my new one. She laughed into the steam. Always on the outside of whatever side there was. You ever hear that Dylan song? No. You should. I'll make time, Grace said. I guess what I'm trying to say is, if you ever need someone to be alone with, I'm here. We could, like, go to a movie sometime. Grace laughed, another first. Stupid idea, I guess. Sal set Middlemarch down on the counter. I'm sorry I woke you. Grace caught Sal's hand before she could withdraw. Her grip was firm and warm. I'm not. Footsteps ran down the hall outside. Grace froze. A key rasped in the lock. The door burst open, revealing Father Manchu. Grace! Sweat shone on his brow. His chest heaved. Sal had never seen him quite so scared before, or as he processed the scene, so confused. Sal, did you do this? You have to get out of here. There's the security team on the way. Don't worry about it, Arturo, Grace said. I called them off. Sal's here as my guest. Manchu closed his mouth, but his brow didn't smooth. Grace waved Middlemarch at him. She came to return my book. The father looked skeptical. She knows, Arturo, and I'm glad. I've been in a dark place. In the end, that's just another sort of wasting time. She finished her tea. Go. I don't mind a party, but I need my rest. Sal walked downstairs with Manchu in silence and sat beside him as he drove through a labyrinth of Roman roads. You've known her 30 years, Sal said after they'd been silent in the car for too long. And she's known me, three, he replied. You? She's known a handful of weeks. Trust takes time. They passed beneath the high arch. The wall to Sal's left was built of ruined ages, crumbled marble palaces, medieval plaster, and stolen columns. Are you doing this for her? She asked. To heal her? He signaled right, then turned. Are you doing this for Perry? She remembered the candle, and the small new smile, and the laugh, and the warmth of Grace's hand. She didn't have to say anything. She said, not just for Perry. And then the night was Rhodes and Rome. You are listening to Book Burners, created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. 
Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Book Burners is created by Max Gladstone and written by Max Gladstone, Margaret Dunlap, Amal El-Motar, Murr Lafferty, Andrea Phillips, and Brian Francis Slattery. Executive produced by Molly Barton and Julian Yap. Performed by XE Sands. Audio production by Amanda Rose Smith and additional editing by Corey Barton and Brooks Ewald. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi. Featuring Jody Redditch Ferber and mixed by Justin Morell. Cover art by Annie Wu. Executive in charge for Realm, Mary Asadolahi. Find more shows like Book Burners by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm. <laughs>